namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sanghang namasa Well, this is the uh, last chapter of Mindfulness, the Path to the Deathless, and it's called The Need for Wisdom in the World. We are here with one common interest among all of us. Instead of a room of individuals all following their own views and opinions, tonight we are all here because of a common interest in the practice of the Dhamma. When this many people come together on a Sunday night, you begin to see the potential for human existence, a society based on this common interest in the truth. In the Dhamma we merge. What arises passes, and in its passing is peace. So, when we begin to let go of our habits and attachments to the conditioned phenomena, we begin to realize the wholeness and oneness of the mind. This is a very important reflection for this time. And there are so many quarrels and wars going on because people cannot agree on anything. Nations against nations, one group against another. It just goes on and on. Quarrels and wars over what? What are they fighting about? About their perceptions of the world. This is my land and I want it this way. I want this kind of government and this kind of political and economic system. And it goes on and on. It goes on to the point where we see slaughter and torture until we destroy the land that we are trying to liberate and enslave or confuse all the people we are trying to free. Why? Because of not understanding the way things are. The way of the Dhamma is one of observing nature and harmonizing our lives with the natural forces. In European civilization, we have never really looked at the world in that way. We've idealized it. If everything were an ideal, then it should be a certain way. And when we just attach to ideals, we end up doing what we have done to our earth at this time, polluting it, and, be, and being at the point of totally destroying it, because we do not understand the limitations placed on us by the earth's conditions. So in all things of this nature, we sometimes have to learn the hard way through doing it all wrong and making a total mess. Hopefully, it's not an insoluble situation. Well, once again, uh, he was giving this talk... Um, uh, back in the uh, uh, early 80s, and um, so this is uh, in the uh, uh, the time of um, uh, the uh, say what they uh, called at the time the mutually assured destruction, the uh, sparring between the United States and the, and the Soviet Union, um, and the arms race was was all uh, happening around that time. And um, one of the reasons why Amravati was was started and uh, Lumpur chose the name Amravati, the Deathless Realm, was because there was uh, uh, an atm- such an atmosphere of conflict and stress in, in the world, uh, and also the um, the true extent of uh, environmental degradation and uh, such like was beginning to be uh, genuinely appreciated through the, the late seventies, early eighties, then more and more of the um, uh, the groups around the world were 
giving voice to their environmental concerns and, and such like. So this was also uh, long before the Berlin Wall came down, and uh, so the um, uh, Eastern Europe was still in the Soviet bloc, and the Soviet Union still existed. So uh, <coughs> the the um, uh, the forces of tension were very strong in the world at that at that time, and uh, one of the reasons why he he started Amravati and also gave the name was because of trying to bring into people's perception there was so much fear of death and uh, so imminence of, of death that he wanted to try and remind people of the possibility of deathlessness and a, a different way of seeing life. And it was also one of the reasons why Amravati was, was founded to be not just uh, a Buddhist center for people from, with a committed uh, Buddhist background, but also trying to make it a place that was uh, available and welcoming and uh, uh, of benefit to people from every kind of um, spiritual disposition or spiritual kind of background or, or or no spiritual background, just so that people wanted to learn how to meditate and to develop a life in a in a skillful way. But this uh, uh, one of the uh, things that he said earlier uh, early on in the, the beginning of this talk is what arises passes and in its passing is peace. So that's a a um, uh, a synopsis or a, a brief way of speaking about one of the um, uh, the central teachings that the Buddha uses about impermanence, which is sabe uh, sankara anicca. Uh, all conditioned things are, are impermanent. Sabe sankara anicca upadavaya damino. Having arisen, then they uh, having integrated, then they disintegrate. Upajitavani rujanti. Having arisen, then they pass away. And in their passing is peace. So that uh, the mind that uh, is able to know the, the way that nature works, the passing of a, a, a thought or a feeling, a mood, a like or a dislike, uh, comfort and discomfort, um, the, the, uh, is a very brief statement of that, but that, um, that quality of peace that is apparent when the mind, uh, say, uh, observes the conditions of nature, that's a, a very central theme of Dhamma practice. So not just the Lumpur Sumedho, but also within the Buddha's teaching, and also Lumpur Cha would emphasize that as well. That uh, the um, when uh, uh, when the mind is conditioned and caught up in its loves and hates and opinions, then when something comes to an end, we just jump to the beginning of the next thing. We uh, we uh, we're always looking for the the next thing to be excited by, to be interested by, to be afraid of, to be uh, have an opinion about. Um, and uh, so that we we don't uh, appreciate the the peace that is available for us, and so that um, it's one of the the main themes that uh, the Lumpur Sumedho uh, emphasized, and when uh, in the later uh, chapter or section about the four noble truths, when speaking about the third noble truth in particular, um, he would often emphasize with each of the four truths the Buddha gave us. A particular means for working with each truth, so that uh, in the Dhamma Chakra Sutta, the, the Buddha's first discourse, he points out that the <coughs> the truth of dukkha or dissatisfaction that needs to be apprehended, parinyayanti, uh, it needs to be understood or to be to be uh, to be um, accepted, and then the second noble truth, the truth of the origin of suffering, uh, and the uh, that being the self-centered craving, the quality of tanha, that uh, needs to be let go of, pahatabhanti. 
The third noble truth, uh, Dukkha Nirodha, the cessation of Dukkha, that needs to be realized, Satchikata Bhanti. And then the fourth noble truth, uh, the uh, path leading to the ending of Dukkha, that needs to be cultivated. So he would often emphasize that third noble truth, that Dukkha Nirodha, that, that needs to be realized in, insofar as we need to notice when there's peace, because peace uh, is not interesting. Peace and silence, it doesn't catch our attention doesn't uh, uh, have a sort of se- uh, sensory sort of zing to it. So that when things are quiet, when they're peaceful, when something has ended, the, uh, the, the mind easily skips over that, it goes on to the next interesting thing. So that, say for example, if you've been um, sitting in, uh, in a room with a, uh, uh, a fridge, and the fridge has been humming away in the background, and then uh, the, the, the uh, thermostat on the fridge switches off, and it goes quiet. You go, oh, that's nice. Didn't even realize that it had been humming, but there's a feeling of relief for two or three seconds, three or four seconds. Oh, that's nice. Or when the, the, uh, um, uh, the, the traffic on the road outside goes quiet, you go, oh, oh, that's nice. Uh, and so we feel that sense of relief when you notice the transition from some kind of stimulus to, to uh, when it's ended. Uh, the change is interesting, but once it's changed, <laughs> the silence itself is not interesting. The, the attention doesn't stay there. And so Lumpur Sumedha would often point out that um, uh, we, we say we want peace, but uh, a lot of the time we don't. We want the next interesting thing. We want to be, we want to be uh, informed, we want to, ha- we want to be excited, we want to be frightened, we want to be irritated, we want something. The, the attention goes to the world of things. It doesn't go to the to the quality of uh, like the silence between words, it goes to the sound of the words because they, they carry more information. The silence between the words is not interesting. <laughs> so that uh, that um, uh, that small comment about um, in, in its passing is peace. It contains a lot. And uh, uh, say we we might feel we've come to stay at Amravati and practice Dhamma here, give ourselves to monastic training, or being help, helping out on the winter retreat, being here as a long term lay resident. Because we want peace, we want uh, we want uh, uh, happiness and fulfillment in our life. But if we don't understand that simple principle of of realizing uh, peace and uh, really accepting that, then the mind keeps getting carried uh, on by that habit of looking for the next interesting thing, the next worrying thing, the next responsibility, or the next uh, the next thing to have an opinion about. So what happens uh, when that is really developed? That sachikata bhanti when that that dukkha niroda, when that sort of, say some painful state comes to an end, then if the mind stays with that, then it's it, <coughs> there's a kind of uh, blossoming of that what comes across as oh this is uh, that sound used to be there now it's gone, uh, uh, and then well so there's nothing interesting here there's nothing special here you're coming into the sala and you're looking for someone say you're, you're looking for Jose in the kitchen. And, Come in here. It's the middle of the afternoon. Jose's not around. Oh, the guy I'm looking for, he's not here. There's, there's not quote unquote. There's nothing here. So then we just say, oh well, the person I'm looking for, he's not here. Okay, there's nothing here. It's not interesting. Move on. Um, <clears throat> but if we stop, forget about Jose, <laughs> and then stop. You know, here we are in the middle of the sala. It's the afternoon. No one else is around. Just let the mind be uh, alert to the present. 
And of course, what's always here is the Dhamma itself. There's that the the quality of of, uh, of Dhamma is is ever present. It's it's uh, sanditiko, apparent here and now, akaliko, timeless. So if we stop and bring attention to the present, then the Dhamma is always here. But we overlook it because we're looking for the next interesting thing, the next sound, or the next thought, the next emotion, the next plan, and so on. So we miss the Dhamma. We don't notice that Dhammata because of being busy with looking for the next thing. So that uh, that simple principle of uh, of uh, <coughs> in the passing of things there is peace is uh, it, it points to that. You know, if we let ourselves really receive that that silence, that spaciousness, that stillness, and allow that into the heart, then that that peace uh, uh, is not just temporary, but it rather it, it's uh, like there's a, there's a blossoming in the heart, there's a, 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 an awakening, and that quality of, of peace is able to be recognized and, and acknowledged, to be realized. Satchikantabhanti literally means to realize. Satcha is truth or reality. Satchikantabhanti needs to be realized, so it needs to be made real in that moment. To continue. Now, in this monastery, the monks and nuns are practicing the Dhamma with diligence. True, still true, even though it's uh, 35 years later, still true. For the whole month of January, we are not even talking. <laughs> Theoretically. For the whole month of January, we are not even talking, but dedicating our lives and offerings offering the blessings of our practice for the welfare of all sentient beings. This whole month is a continuous prayer and offering from this community for the welfare of all sentient beings. So in those days, the winter retreat was only a month long. Then it got extended to two months, three months. <clears throat> it's a time just for realization of truth, watching and listening and observing the way things are. A time to refrain from indulging in selfish habits, moods, to give that all up for the welfare of all sentient beings. This is a sign to all people to reflect on this kind of dedication and sacrifice of moving towards truth. It's a pointer towards realizing truth in your own life, rather than just living in a perfunctory, habitual way, following the expedient conditions of the moment. It's a reflection for others, to give up immoral, selfish or unkind pursuits and becoming one who is moving towards impeccability, generosity, morality, and compassionate action in the world. If we do not do this, then it's a completely hopeless situation. Everything might as well be blown up, because if nobody is willing to use their life for anything more than just selfish indulgence, then it is worthless. This country is a generous and benevolent country, but we can just take it for granted and exploit it for what we can get out of it. We do not think much about giving anything to it, we may demand a lot, wanting the government to make everything nice for us, and then we criticize it when it cannot do it. Nowadays, you find selfish individuals living their lives on their own terms without wisely reflecting and living in a way that would be a blessing to the society as a whole. As human beings, we can make our lives into, uh, into, into great blessings, or we can become a plague on the landscape, taking Earth's resources for our personal gain and getting as much as we can for ourselves for me and mine. In the practice of the Dhamma, the sense of me and mine starts fading away. 
the sense of me and mine as this little creature sitting here that has a mouth and has to eat. If I just follow the desires of my body and emotions, then I become a greedy, selfish little creature. But when I reflect on the nature of my physical condition and how it can be skillfully used in this lifetime for the welfare of all sentient beings, then this being becomes a blessing. Not uh, in parentheses, not that one thinks of oneself as a blessing. I'm a blessing. It's another kind of conceit if you start attaching to the idea that you are a blessing. So one is actually living each day in such a way that one's life is something that brings joy, compassion, kindness, or at least is not causing unnecessary confusion and misery. So, uh, if I remember correctly, during this this retreat, uh, um, this was I think 1981 at Chidhurst, and um, we were all this was before the um, the shrine room was even fixed up. There was still a large hole in the floor there, eaten by dry rot, in where the shrine room is in the house now. So we were all in the in the reception room at Chidhurst. That was that was the sort of the one room that could accommodate the whole community. And uh, during this uh, this retreat, after we'd been together for about a week, uh, I think uh, Lumpur Sumedho had recognised that we were all sort of looking very kind of serious and intent, um, and uh, he could feel a certain sort of stressing in the in the air. And uh, knowing how the mind works, uh, and seeing how easy it is for people to dwell upon self criticism or feeling that you know you're not really doing well enough, or your mind is filled with with confusion and defilements, and and um, and so after about a week of us sitting together, he said, um, uh, <coughs> it's, uh, uh, "Isn't it a, a wonderful thing that we've all been together in this room and nobody has killed each other? No, no one has murdered any of the other. No monk has murdered any other monk. This is wonderful. This is amazing." Uh, and then they so started going through all the precepts. You know, none of you have stolen anything. That's incredible. That's not not many people in the in the world can say that of the of the community that they live in that no one has actually stolen anything or helped themselves to something that didn't belong to them. So, and you've been celibate for a whole week. That's amazing. I'm of course in a monastery. We're supposed to be, uh, but just to say, a, a group of human beings, young women and men, twenty five people living in a house together, and everyone's celibate. This is not a, an insignificant thing. And you could he- almost hear the wheels sort of clicking. Yeah, actually, yeah. <laughs> come to think of it, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, that is pretty amazing. Yeah. And so it was, a, it was a really wonderful reflection that he gave because it was, and he was saying, you know, this is really a wonderful thing in the world, you know, because the attention could so easily be, oh, my mind's confused, I can't concentrate, I'm filled with worries and aversions. And, and, uh, and so this sense of being a blessing for the world, he said, you know, it's uh, it's very easy to be critical of yourself and to, to look at all of your faults, or to be looking at the faults of of, of other people. But um, you know you can also change the perception, and you can see that you're a, a, a punyaketa, a field of merit. And you think, what? What's he talking about? You know, you're you're living your lives in such a way that that's a that's a really good example. That's really uh, say bringing. The, uh, the 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 standard of human behavior up a few notches, you know, kind of raising the raising the bar for human conduct. You know, you're a field of blessings. Field of blessings. What does he mean? So, like in the chanting, you say an un- unsurpassed field of blessings for the world, punya keta. So that, yeah. You know, <clears throat> how many of you have you thought of yourselves as a field of blessings? And you could say, like, no, nope, not me. <laughs> well, none of us would be would think that way. But uh, he would uh, say, you know, how. When you are living in a way that's harmless, that's honourable, that's uh, 
that's uh, honest and respectful, you know, with a great res- you know, restraint and spending your time trying to focus your mind on, on truth and to let go of greed, hatred, and delusion. That's a, that's a wonderful thing in the world. Uh, again, as he says, you know, if, you, if the ego grasps hold of it and said, I'm a real blessing, I'm a real blessing to the world, do you know how lucky you are to have me around? <laughs> that, uh, then that's a stupid conceit. But just to change the, the, the view of, of how you feel, how you are, and what, what you're bringing to the world. Just like right now, you know, it, it, the, the presence of Amravati in the world is something that's, that's really important to many people, thousands and thousands of people around the world. And you might think, I, I'm not reading anybody's mind, but, but it's very easy to think, well, yeah, but they're, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of a passenger here, really. You know, I'm just sort of a visitor. Like, the ones who are the, the good example, that's the other lot, not, not me. If they knew what was going on in my mind, you know, that wouldn't be anything that would be inspiring or gladdening to anybody around the world. But <coughs> it's, everybody thinks that. <laughs> it's the others that are inspiring and good, and that they, the mind tends to dwell upon our own faults. But the very fact that Amravati exists and that people come together for three months in the wintertime, you have a whole group of nuns and monks, you have a large group of lay people living here and also a whole team coming to support the winter retreat. So you've got about 50, 60 people living here and practicing during this time. That's a powerful and inspiring presence in people's lives. That um, over and over again, people come and visit and say, "Oh, I'm listening to the podcast all the time. It's so important. I'm so happy to visit Amravati. It's such an important place." And, and they live in like Darwin in Northern Australia or in Buenos Aires in Argentina. Like, and Amravati is the most sort of alive thing in their world. They say, "Well, you live in Buenos Aires, you know?" <laughs> so, yes, but I know everything that goes on here. You know, they're, they're listening to all of the the talks and uh, following the news and so on and so that uh, even though we might feel that during the course of a day we're sort of struggling with our, our restlessness and our dullness and trying to stay awake during the meditation uh, little me I'm not really contributing anything but Amravati is the people it's, it's not the buildings if, without, if it wasn't for the people which is you <laughs> then there wouldn't be an Amravati right you just have a bunch of old wooden huts yeah. or a nice big temple but the uh, the the monastery is the people. It's not this is not just the buildings, and so that uh, and the people is you. <laughs> that that's the, we we are the people. So that uh, what constitutes this place and what constitutes what's inspiring about it is the the intention and effort that uh, everyone everyone brings, regardless of how much time your mind spends falling asleep or drifting off into fantasies or reminiscing and planning. That. Uh, the very fact that you're you're trying to control your 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 mind, you're working with your emotions and feelings, ideas, and memories, and, and trying to guide your life towards goodness. That that's a, a a powerful force in the world. It's a source of a blessing in the world. Well, the least we can do is keep the five precepts, so that our bodies and speech are not being used for disruption, cruelty, and exploitation on this planet. Is that asking too much of any of you? Is it too fantastic to give up doing what you feel like at the moment in order to be at least a little more careful and responsible for what you do and say? We can all try to help, be generous and kind and considerate to the other beings that we have to share this planet with. We can all wisely investigate and understand the limitations we are under so that we are no longer deluded by the sensory world. This is why we meditate. 
For a monk or nun, this is a way of life, a sacrifice of our particular desires and whims for the welfare of the community, of the Sangha. If I start thinking of myself and of what I want, then I forget about the rest of you, because what I particularly want at the moment might not be good for the rest of you. But when I use this refuge in the Sangha as my guide, then the welfare of the Sangha is my joy, and I give up my personal whims for the welfare of the Sangha. That's why the monks and nuns all shave their heads and live under the discipline established by the Buddha. This is a way of training oneself to let go of self as a way of living, a way that brings no shame or guilt or fear into one's life. The sense of disruptive individuality is lost because one is no longer determined to be independent from the rest, or to dominate, but to harmonize and live for the welfare of all beings, rather than for one's own welfare. The lay community has the opportunity to participate in this. The monks and nuns are dependent on the, upon the lay community just for basic survival, so it's an important thing for the lay community to take that responsibility. That takes you lay people out of your particular problems and obsessions because when you take time to come here, to give, to help, to practice meditation and to listen to the Dhamma, we find ourselves merging in that oneness of truth. We can be here together without envy, jealousy, fear, doubt, greed or lust because of our inclination towards realizing that truth. Make that the intention for your life. Don't waste your life on foolish pursuits. So, uh, it's quite a long talk, this, so before I carry on, any thoughts, questions, reflections? Don't be shy. You know, that, uh, if we have that attitude of, of being a member of the Sangha and so being part of a group, then there's a, a natural, it, it, it's, like a, it's like the sea, it buoys you up, it, it kind of, it, it, it's supportive. Uh, more that we get self-obsessed, then as, uh, as Lung Po was saying here as well, that uh, 
then the more that we we get sort of fixated on our individual wishes and needs and and it becomes really depressing and uh, one way that he uh in later years at Lumpur Sumedha would speak but to, to put it very simply he'd say whenever I think about myself I feel depressed yeah. <laughs> it's kind of a, it's a, a, a very neat way of expressing it and uh, <clears throat> but it's um, uh, as he said the welfare of the Sangha is my joy so that, that the, the mind is basically letting go of, of self-obsession and then there's more of an attitude of service or being part of a, of a group and, and say that well Rather than what putting what I want to do, what's interesting to me first, um, if I just look and see well, what's what's useful for the group, what's what's of service, there's like just a whole shift of of uh, feeling. There's a whole sort of it's like you can breathe again. It's a, it's a strange chemistry. And many well, one of the winter retreats we had here in the in the early nineties, uh, no, um, late eighties. And I was in a very, very zealous period of, of meditation practice. And so um, <clears throat> I had this, I think it was about, uh, I, I was doing the sitter's practice. So I didn't lie down to sleep at night in that, that period for about three years. And uh, I was very kind of uh, take no prisoners approach to me- meditation. And so uh, we were, every so often during the winter retreat, we'd have a, we'd have a four-hour sitting. So we, we used the retreat center shrine room. As our meditation hall, the temple didn't exist in those days, so we used the retreat center shrine room as our as our um, meditation space. And so every so often we'd have a four-hour sitting. So that the rule was: you, you arrive, you begin at one o'clock, and you have to stay on your mat until five o'clock, and no excuses. If you, you know, you can't you can't get up and leave to go to the bathroom or anything. It's just like you arrive, and that's you can you can stand up and stretch your legs, but you have to sort of stay on your on your mat. You could change your posture, but it was uh, it was that was part of the, um, the standard discipline. So that we'd have one of those every couple of weeks, and uh, so I've got quite a flexible body. I inherited from my, my mostly from my mother, very conveniently flexible hips. So I'm still fairly limber, touch wood. And so uh, sitting for a long period of time and changing the posture wasn't a big wasn't a big deal for me at that time. So, because I was in, in this ze- extra zealous mode, I thought, well, a Lumpur Chai, when the first rains retreat that he uh, uh, he led in Thailand before Wat Bapong began, they had an all-night sitting every night, and for the last month of the rains, and they had like a 12-hour sitting, and no one was allowed to move for the whole 12 hours, every night. So, if you think life in Amravati is tough for the moment, you, know, you have no idea. So anyway, I thought, well, he could, you know, he was sitting for 12 hours without moving every night, so at least I can manage to sit for four hours without moving uh, during this these uh, this group sitting. So anyway, and as soon as I had that thought, my part of my mind was going, no, 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 no don't say that, don't say that, that's really stupid. Uh, but then I thought, okay, just do it. So anyway, I um, <clears throat> I sort of sat myself down in the in the shrine room. And then, even though normally I could sit for about an hour without too much discomfort, because there was this idea of I've got to sit for four hours without moving, because um, I've made this resolution, I was in agony after about ten minutes. So, <laughs> and uh, interestingly enough, uh, Lumpur Sumedha had exactly the same experience when he was on a uh, uh, a retreat with um, 
with John Coleman, the first meditation retreat he did in, in this country, he did with John Coleman. He said, okay, this is a maximum determination sitting. You know, you're not allowed to move the next hour. And uh, he, uh, Ajahn Sumedha could quite happily sit for an hour without moving. But because it was maximum determination, you can't move. He said exactly the same way. He was in agony after 10 minutes. So anyhow, so I was uh, very uncomfortable and, uh, and just my mind you know, racing for the first hour or so and just dealing with this uh, physical pain and difficulty. Then after about, uh, after about uh, an hour and a half, then it, it sort of quietened down into a, a steady whimper, like, oh, poor me, oh, this is so painful. <laughs> just this sort of miserable negative, uh, poor me, why do I do this to myself, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, kind of moaning, complaining, and negative state. So then, at about the two-hour mark, so we're halfway through the, the sitting, then I thought, this is really stupid. You know, you've, <laughs> you've, you've been here for, for two hours, you've got another couple of hours here, and, uh, <clears throat> and all this time, the, all you've thought about is yourself. And then I, and I opened up my eyes, and I thought, my goodness, there's 60 other people in this room. And not, for, not for one second have I thought about anybody else apart from me for this whole you know, two-hour period. So I thought, well, if I'm going to be uncomfortable anyway, so I might as well do something useful while I'm here. And so I looked around the room, and I could see uh, people you know, working away at the meditation, and that their bodies were a lot less flexible, and experiencing much more discomfort and, and so forth. So I, I thought, well, I'll just spread loving kindness, you know, and just forget about my own my own practice and concentration and everything. I'll just use the opportunity to spread loving kindness and compassion around the room. And so, um, so I started to do that, and then to my surprise, after about half an hour, I thought, oh, actually, I'm feeling quite comfortable now. You know, this, this pain it seems to be diminishing, and uh, this is quite enjoyable. So, so looking around the room and seeing everyone and spreading loving kindness to everyone, and so by <coughs> by the by about hour number three, I was uh, uh, my body was quite uh, pain free, and oh, this is really great. Oh, this is, and then of course the inner lawyer is saying, oh, this is a really good way to get around pain. Sort of <laughs> so as soon as I started weaseling and uh, kind of negotiating, kind of maneuvering, then uh, the, you know, the pain, you know, pain would come back into my legs. But as, soon as, it, as long as it was completely sincere and the mind is just given to, to sort of caring for the group and having you know, loving kindness and well-wishing towards the whole group, then the body was very relaxed and pain-free. And to my amazement, when uh, Lumpur Sumedha rang the bell at, uh, at five o'clock, my first thought was, oh, I was enjoying that. I thought that was very different, <laughs> comparing that to the, the first hour or two, where I was like, oh, poor me, poor me. It was a really good, it was mostly a lesson, not so much about pain and, and uh, patience, but it was mostly a, um, a lesson about self-obsession, self-centeredness, and how miserable it is just to think about yourself all the time. That's not just a cunning way to help you, you know, to encourage uh, uh, people to help out more, <laughs> but it's a it's an effect that it, that you are more appreciated and you you tend to be more harmonious with others if you bring attention to to the group. But in terms of our own practice, uh, there's a central feature to to let go of that self concern, self obsession, and to continually remember: okay, what's what's beneficial for the group? What's going to be uh, Blessing for everyone, that's the, the most important concern.
This truth, it can be called many things. Religions try to convey it through concepts and doctrines, but we have forgotten what religion is about. In the past hundred years or so, our society has been following materialistic science, rational thought and idealism based on our ability to conceive of political and economic systems. Yet we cannot make them work, can we? We cannot really create a democracy or a true communism or a true socialism. We cannot create that because we're still deluded by the sense of self. So it ends up in tyranny and in selfishness, fear and suspicion. So the present world situation is a result of not understanding the way things are. At a time when each one of us, if we really are concerned about what we can do, has to make our own life into something worthy. Now, how do we do this? Firstly, we have to admit to any motivations or selfish indulgence or emotional immaturity in order to know them and be able to let them go. To open the mind to the way things are, to be alert. Our practice of anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing, is a beginning, isn't it? It's not just another habit or pastime that we develop to keep us busy, but a means of putting forth effort to observe, concentrate, and be with the way the breath is. We could instead spend a lot of time watching television, going to the pub, doing all kinds of things that are not very skillful. Somehow that seems more important than spending my time watching my own breath, doesn't it? When we watch the TV news and see people being slaughtered in some global trouble spot, all that seems more important than just sitting watching inhalations and exhalations. But this is the mind that does not understand the ways things are. So we're interested in watching the shadows on the screen and the misery that can be conveyed through a television screen about greed, hatred and stupidity carried on in a most despicable way. Wouldn't it be much more skillful to spend that time being with the way the body is right now? It would be better to have respect for this physical being here so that one learns not to exploit it, misuse it, the happiness that we want. In the monastic life, we don't have television because we dedicate our lives to doing more useful things, like watching our breath, walking up and down the forest path. The neighbours think we're dotty. English colloquialism, dotty means crazy, stupid. Lumpur was very fond of developing anglicism. It's not a very American expression. Dotty is more, much more English than American. So Lumpur Tomato is very fond of anglicisms. The neighbours think we're dotty. Every day they see people going out wrapped up in blankets and walking up and down. What are they doing? They must be crazy. We had a fox hunt here a couple of weeks ago. The hounds were chasing foxes through our woods, doing something really useful and beneficial for all sentient beings. Sixty dogs and all these grown-up people chasing after a wretched little fox. It would be better to spend the time walking up and down in a, on a forest path, wouldn't it? Better for the fox. Better for the dogs, for Hammerwood, and for the fox hunters. But people in West Sussex think they are normal. <laughs> They're the normal ones, and we're the nutty ones. When we watch our breath and walk up and down the forest path, at least we're not terrorizing foxes. How would you feel if 60 dogs were chasing you? Just imagine what your heart would do if you had a pack of 60 dogs chasing after you and people on horseback telling them to get you. It's ugly when you really reflect on this. Yet that is considered normal, or even a desirable thing to do in this part of England. This was before the hunting ban in this country, which came in 
uh, a few years uh, uh, later on. It's not even, it's not completely um, uh, <coughs> respected. Uh, still hunts that carry on, but uh, it's supposed to be banned. Yeah, that is considered normal or even a desirable thing to do in this part of England because people don't take time to reflect. We can be victims of habit, caught in desires and habits. If we really investigated fox hunting, we wouldn't do it. Anyone who had any intelligence and really considered what that's about wouldn't want to do it. On the other hand, when we walk up and down mindfully or watch our breathing, we begin to be more intelligent, aware and sensitive. And through these seemingly insignificant practices, just as when we keep the five precepts, the truth stands out. Living in the Dhamma creates a field of blessing for the world. When you start reflecting on the way things are, and remember when your life has really been in danger, you will know how horrible that feeling is. It's an absolutely terrifying experience. One doesn't intentionally want to subject any other creature to that experience, if one has reflected on it. There's no way in which one is intentionally going to subject another creature to that terror. If you do not reflect, you think foxes do not matter, or fish do not matter. They're just there for your pleasure. Hunting or fishing is something to do on a Sunday afternoon. I can remember one woman who came to see me and was very upset about us buying the Hammer Pond. Being part of a Buddhist monastery, Hammer Pond and Hammer Wood, of course, became wildlife sanctuaries. She said, you know, I get so much peace. I don't come here to fish. I come here for the peacefulness of being here. She spent every Sunday out catching fish just to be at peace. I thought she looked quite healthy. She was a little plump, but she was not starving to death. She did not, she did not really need fish for survival. So you do not really need two fish for survival. I said, well, you could, if you don't need to fish for survival. You, you have enough money, I hope, to buy fish. You could come here after we buy this pond, and you could just meditate here. You don't have to fish. But she didn't want to meditate. Then she went on about rabbits eating her cabbages. So she had to put out all kinds of things that would kill rabbits to keep them from eating her cabbages. This woman never reflects on anything, Jiz, but she can very well go out and buy cabbages. But rabbits can't. Rabbits have to do the best they can by eating someone else's cabbages. But she never really opened her mind to the way things are, to what is truly kind and benevolent. I would not say that she's cruel or heartless, uh, cruel or heartless person, just an ignorant middle-class woman who never reflected on nature or realized the way the Dhamma is. That might sound a little negative or critical. <laughs> So she thinks that cabbages are there for her and not for rabbits. And fish are there so that she can have a peaceful Sunday afternoon torturing them. <clears throat> now this ability to reflect and observe is what the Buddha was pointing to in his teachings. Uh, as the liberation from the blind following of habit and convention. It's a way to liberate this being from the, delu the delusion of the sensory condition through wise reflection on the way things are. We begin to observe ourselves the desire for something, or the aversion, the dullness or the stupidity of the mind. We're not picking and choosing or trying to create pleasant conditions for personal pleasure, but are even willing to endure unpleasant or miserable conditions in order to understand them as just that, and be able to let them go. We're starting to free ourselves from running away from things that we don't like. We also begin to be much more careful about how we do live. 
once you see what it's all about, you really want to be very, very careful about what you do and say. You can have the intention not to live life at the expense of any other creature. One no longer feels that one's life is so much more important than anyone else's. One begins to feel the freedom and the lightness in that harmony with nature rather than the heaviness of exploitation of nature for personal gain. When you open the mind to the truth, then you realize there is nothing to fear. What arises passes away. What is born dies and is not self. So that our sense of being caught in an identity with this human body fades out. We don't see ourselves as some isolated, alienated entity lost in a mysterious and frightening universe. We don't feel overwhelmed by it, trying to find a little piece of it that we can grasp and feel safe with, because we feel at peace with it. Then we have merged with the truth. This... Um, uh, reflections on fox hunting. I, I confess that I grew up in the in the countryside and went fox hunting as a child. But I think it was my great good karma that whenever I went out with with the fox hunt, they never caught any foxes, <laughs> not once. So um, I, they didn't. I don't think they they caught them at many other times. They weren't a very a very efficient hunt. It's called the <laughs> Ashford Valley hunt. But uh, you know, dressing up and going out with your horse and being out with us. Uh, a group of people and the pack of hounds and the whole thing is so a strong so sort of cultural form. But um, yeah, for some reason, they, they ne whenever I was out with them as a child, they ne they never caught a fox. So I take that as a great blessing. But, uh, I wasn't uh, part of that. But uh, one of the traditions that the uh, if you're on your first fox hunt as a child and they do catch a fox, uh, one of the traditions is that you get blooded. So they they cut one of the uh, the 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 feet off the, the the dead fox and smear your face with blood. It's called being blooded. That's part of the the ritual. So I was never blooded. One f a friend of ours, um, she was so proud of of, uh, of that when she was uh, after she got blooded on her first first hunt, that she w she refused to wash her face for days and days and days. And so going to school with blood all over her face. So in the in the English countryside, that was quite a normal thing to be doing. Strange as it may seem. So the very fact that it sounds kind of uh, crazy and appalling nowadays is a, a sign of maturation in society. Uh, Oscar Wilde described the um, process of fox hunting as the unspeakable in hot pursuit of the uneatable. In <laughs> <laughs> a very good way with words. It was also interesting when uh, people who uh, go fishing there this uh, comment. Well, I, I, you know, I like the peace of sitting by the lake, you know, by the lake or by the river, and, and the uh, and that the uh, part, uh, sort of part of that. But it's interesting how when um, uh, one of our, our friends in the states, he was a very keen fisherman, a very keen angler, and then he started to, to meditate, and then the the effect of meditation. Then, uh, as he was sitting by the the riverbank with his with his Fishing rod and and the uh, and his sort of hook and bait and such like, he began to think about what it was like for the fish, which he, you know mysteriously he'd never considered that before. So began to reflect. Well, so there I am. If I'm swimming along in my favoured environment, there I am f swimming along the river, and I see something that's good to eat, and I take a mouthful of it, and suddenly I, the the mouthful of food then 
turns into this sharp pain, and I'm wrenched out of my my environment, out into this this uh, the air where you, you can't breathe, and the fish is as anyone has ever seen a fish being caught, they're, they're struggling, they're gasping, and it's it's a miserable, painful experience. And he he said, you know, after a while, he just couldn't uh, he couldn't go fishing anymore, just thinking what it was like and seeing that, that what a horrible. Uh, the experience that the fish was being subjected to, even though the 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 group um, attitude often is, oh well, fish don't actually feel any, don't actually feel any pain. <laughs> but you 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 don't have to be um, a genius to to see when when a fish is pulled out of the water, it does not want to be out of the water. <laughs> it is not happy. It's it's struggling and, and is in desperate uh, anguish. Uh, you can say, well, they don't. Really, it's not really emotion. It's not like a kind of as if they were a person. But uh, they, he, he doesn't take very much empathy at all to see that uh, that the creature is really in a distressed state. And as Nampur uh, Sumedho points out here, you just you bring your mind to that. You you, know, you couldn't possibly do that kind of thing in a in a deliberate way. You couldn't uh, you couldn't give yourself. Uh, you couldn't be supportive uh, of that. So the heart inclines uh, away from the from those things and towards uh, living in a much more skillful and, and noble way. Any questions, thoughts, reflections? Well, that's the end of um, Mindfulness, the Path to the Deathless. And um, that particular collection of, uh, of teachings. So this book was uh, uh, the, the um, original Mindfulness, Path to the Deathless was printed to be distributed when Amravati opened. So it was, it was done in that, uh, that uh, period of the early 80s. Amravati uh, opened up in May of 1985, the community first moved here in, in during the Vasa, uh, uh, August of 84. So these these talks were from that earlier period. So the uh, <coughs> interesting the um, how dressing up to go uh, go fox hunting you know you, you the kind of things that you wear like the sort of 18th century English uh, outfit you, you wear a, uh, a what's called a stock this kind of a, a white scarf with a special pin through it around your neck and and then the the huntsmen have these their the, their red coats but they're called pink you don't say red. Hunting pink, even though it's exactly red, and the and the dogs are not dogs; they're hounds. If you call them a dog, then it's like <laughs> basically you better go home quickly because you know they're not dogs; they're hounds. They have all these conventions around the, that, and it's a, it's a whole whole scene of it. And uh, but if you're in that environment, it all seems completely normal. You, know, you grow up; that's that's absolutely familiar. And uh, 
and so one of the the um, I think one of the great blessings of Lumpur Sumedha coming in from America or in Thailand into English society then that he was able to sort of see these English customs, even though he did like English expressions like dotty and, uh, and uh, he was fond of the English way of life as a as a foreigner as an outsider then he was able to really appreciate those kind of um, uh, customs and habits and forms from a, from a, a more of an objective point of view and to to see how you know we we create conventions and live by them and take them for granted granted like so for english country people fox hunting seems completely normal and how as an outsider it seems completely strange like, uh, one year at the buddhist society summer school uh, in the early 80s again i was with with Lumpur, um and we went during the afternoon we went out for a walk through hoddiston it was in this old um, stately home called high lee and then we go through a, a walk through the through the town and we walk past a cricket match and so he asked, so he innocently asked, so, uh, uh, I said, this is cricket, isn't it? I said, that's right. He said, so, so what, what's happening there? <laughs> and trying to explain the rules of cricket to an American, it's very, it took a long time. It's, it's, it's very strange. The whole sport of cricket is extremely strange to, uh, to outsiders. But again, when you grow up with it, it seems completely, completely normal. And another, I was just as I was reading that, I was reminded of another interesting sort of meeting of, of conventions. <clears throat> so when I was living in the States, um, I was invited to give a, a talk. I have a dialogue with the, the dean of Grace Cathedral. So uh, uh, the Anglican Church in America is called the Episcopalian Church. And so the the, la, the main Episcopalian cathedral in San Francisco is called Grace Cathedral. So the 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 dean there was a British. Uh, minister and uh, we'd met at some event and he said oh could you come along and give a talk at Grace Cathedral um, and I said certainly and they said well, it's a it's a sort of it's a live webcast so there'll be a dialogue between us but it'll be sort of broadcast live um, over the airwaves you know you're okay with that and I said yeah that's fine so <clears throat> we we came along and to this this gathering and um, so uh, uh, there's a quite a large group of people um, there in the in the cathedral, and then we sit down on these chairs up in front of everyone. <clears throat> and so uh, he said, "Well, the first question I want to ask, well, the first question I want to ask you is, how did a, a nice young man like you end up dressed like this?" <laughs> and I said, "Well, I could say the same to you." <laughs> and he said, what, "What do you mean?" He said, "Well, I said, well, you're wearing a purple evening dress." <laughs> And it was it was really interesting because he, you know he was a dean, so he had his full kind of uh, Anglican purple robes on, and he didn't register that as being strange. You know that's, that's normal. That's like what what the what the dean is supposed to wear. But this I was wearing a you know, Buddhist monk's robe, so I was a I was a young man wearing strange gear. But him, where I said, well, you, you're wearing a purple evening dress. You know. <laughs> yeah, I could say the same to you. And it was this, this interesting moment. It was going out live, you know, so there's a sort of, oh. <laughs> and I made a wisecrack about, well, we are in San Francisco, so, I, you know, we can get away with wearing all kinds of things here that, yeah, maybe in other American cities wouldn't be so easy. But, but it was an interesting moment because at, up until that time, he didn't see that wearing a full-length purple dress was a strange thing for a, 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 a British man with a with a white beard to be doing. I said, 
<laughs> yeah, you've got the full length frock on. So uh, sometimes the, we, what we think of as normal and is familiar to us is uh, we, we don't notice how much of thinking. And, um, <clears throat> so, and it's interesting if, you, if when you're wearing robes and you're living in the monastery, you, know, you forget that having a shaved head and wearing robes is, is a little bit unusual. So sometimes when uh, people have been here not traveling outside the monastery for a few weeks or a few months, and then they make a trip into Hamel or they go on the go into London and on the on the London Underground, they think, "Why is everyone looking at me? Why is it's funny? They give me, they give me the kind of strange look. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a shaven head. I'm a woman with a shaved head wearing yeah, wearing wearing robes. Oh yes, of course. This is this isn't normal for those people. Uh, and they're meeting something unfamiliar, and so we, what's totally normal and ordinary in a monastery, then we we forget that outside of this is, uh, other people have different conventions. So that's enough for this evening.